Today's passage is 23, uh, so grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis 23. If you don't have a pew Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free to grab a pew Bible. Today's passage is on page 20. Uh, Please follow along as I read. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kirith Arba, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his death and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for buying for a burying a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince among God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, Hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zoar, that he may give me that cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in, uh, in hearing of the Hittites. Of all who went in at the gate of this city, no, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of these of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of his land, But if you will hear me, I give you the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead here. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of the land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field which are with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the city of all went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Uh, Please bow your head as I pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day we can be in your house, and thank you for the wisdom of your word. Like Abraham, give us a heart of understanding and faith when we struggle with loss. Lord, help us to be a light to others when we are mourning, so even in our pain we can show that our hope is not in the things of this world, but in the things that are eternal. Be with Pastor Bruce this morning as he teaches from your word, and help us to be ready to hear and apply the wisdom from your word, Lord. All this we pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, as always, I invite you to keep your Bibles open to their Genesis chapter 23 as we continue in our series on the life of Abraham. We are almost done with this journey. Uh, We have next Sunday and then the Sunday after that, and we will conclude our series, Abraham, God a Promise in a Life of Faith. The Taj Mahal, it sits like a jewel in northern India. 
The Taj Mahal is visited by over 2 million people every year. The emperor Saw Jahan built the Taj Mahal way back in the 17th century, sparing absolutely no expense in the lavish construction of the famous building. 20,000 workers labored for over 20 years on what would become one of the world's most beautiful buildings. Taj Mahal, it means crown palace, but in fact, it is a mausoleum. The emperor built the Taj Mahal as a memorial to his favorite wife who died while giving birth to their 14th child. Her death so crushed the emperor that all his hair and beard were said to have grown snow white in just a few months. His wife's final resting place is the most well-preserved and architecturally beautiful tomb in the world. In fact, the English poet Sir Edwin Arnold described the Taj Mahal as, as not just a piece of architecture, as other buildings are, but the proud passions of an emperor's love wrought in living stones. By contrast, just 19 miles southwest of Jerusalem, in the vicinity of Hebron, there is a cave. And like the Taj Mahal, this cave provided for a burial of a beloved wife by a grieving husband. However, unlike the Taj Mahal, this particular cave It is not adorned in any way by human hands. And while there is nothing in particular beautiful about this cave itself, it's purchased 4,000 years ago. It speaks volumes about the faith of a grieving husband. Abraham bought this cave specifically to bury his wife Sarah in the promised land. And perhaps you notice, as we read through Genesis chapter 23, that there is only a couple of verses here about Sarah's death and her burial. She dies in verse 2, and she's buried in verse 19. And everything in between is about this negotiation between Abraham and the Hittites for this cave as a burial place for his wife Sarah. So we, we might be tempted. In fact, as Andy was reading through it, you were like, oh my, what's Bruce going to say about this particular chapter? Is there anything here for us today? We might be tempted to just skip over this chapter, thinking there's nothing relevant for us to learn, for us to take away and apply in our lives. And and so this morning, I, I really do, I hope to show you that this chapter is not here to simply tell us how to conduct business with the Hittites. It's not here to show us or to teach us to about business ethics. That's not the main focus of this chapter, even though it consumes the majority of this chapter. There is a lot more to this chapter than we might think, what might appear on the surface. Abraham's purchase of this cave in the promised land is a a demonstration of his faith in the promises of God. That's the central lesson of this chapter. In fact, notice it in your notes coming up on the screen. When death comes, Genesis 23, this chapter here, it shows us that in the face of death, in mourning, there is hope in the promises of God. God's promises, in other words, 
His promises are not complete or exhausted in this lifetime. There's more yet to come beyond the grave. And God will fulfill every one of them, all of the promises that He has made. And so it is not for this life only that we trust in Jesus Christ. For every believer, listen to me, the best is yet to come. And not even death itself can quench our faith and hope in the promises of God. For Abraham and Sarah, the best is yet to come had everything to do with the land of Canaan. This is the key to understanding the relevance and the significance and even the importance of this particular chapter. Remember the promises that God made to Abraham now some 60 years ago, back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. Let me read it to you. He says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And so he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then, as we have seen throughout this study, God repeated this particular promise of land three more times. He did it in Genesis 15 or 13, 15 and 17. And so we have this promise from God about the land of Canaan stated on four separate occasions here throughout the life of Abraham. And now we come to Genesis 23, and we come to the death of Sarah. And death is always tragic, is it not? It's always a sad, grieving time in life. But Sarah's death presents a very unique problem. Sarah dies before she sees the fulfillment of God's promises. She will not live to see her son Isaac become a great nation. She will never possess any part of the land that God has promised to give to Abraham and his descendants. And so in the eyes of the world, as they read this chapter, as they look upon the life of Abraham and Sarah, Sarah's death here is tragic indeed in the eyes of the world. For it marks the expiration of God's opportunity to fulfill his promises to her. And so in the eyes of the world, God is nothing more than a promise breaker. He is a God you cannot trust. However, God has a different perspective. God intends to fulfill all of his promises to Sarah, and not even death can prevent the fulfillment of his promises. It is true that nothing will stop death. We see that all around us every day. But it is also true that death won't stop God's promises. Nothing can stop God from delivering on his promises, not even death. That is the lesson here that we are to take home with us. This is what Genesis 23 is all about. It shows us that the promises of God, they do not expire when God's people die. Abraham acted in faith when he purchased a piece of land in Canaan on which to bury his wife, believing with all his heart that God would still fulfill his promises even after death. Verse 2 states that Sarah died where? In the land of of Canaan. And then you go all the way to the end of the chapter there, and you see in verse 19 that Abraham buried Sarah where? It says specifically in the land of Canaan. Why? Because Moses, the author here, 
And God, through the authorship of Moses, wants to show us that in the face of death, in mourning, there is hope in the promises of God. So three lessons that just jump right out of the pages of Scripture here for us when it comes to faith in the face of death. Number one, we see death in Canaan. And this is the common sorrow of God's people. Death. Death is a part of life. Nothing we do will stop death. And so like a quiet but violent storm, death is coming for every one of us here today. This is a sobering reality. This is perhaps shocking only because we don't think about death enough as we should. We live as if this life is all there is. And yet when we do think about death, it can be rather terrifying. And perhaps that is because we, we intuitively, we know that, that death is, is an enemy of some sort. That death is, is not part of God's original design for humanity. That death will bring us face-to-face with our Creator. And so Sarah's death here, in this chapter, it is a reminder to us all that death is the common sorrow of God's people. We read in verses 1 and 2, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah, and Sarah died. At Kerath Abra, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abram, Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And so in many, many ways, Sarah's death is just another death in the long line of deaths that stretch way back to Adam and Eve. You go back to Genesis chapter 5, and the drumbeat there of life and death, life and death, life and death is recorded over and over and over again of the years of man's life, and it's all followed by this statement, and he died, and he died, and he died, to remind us that death is a consequence of our sin. It's also a reminder why we need the salvation of Jesus Christ. So Sarah's death, this is not a strange occurrence. It is the common sorrow of God's people. But notice the death of this person, Sarah, the death of a princess. Sarah was 127 years old when she died in the land of Canaan, and Abraham mourned for his wife. Now, Sarah died old and full of years, and she died in the promised land of Canaan. And it doesn't appear, we're not told, so it doesn't appear that she suffered any long illness, nor does it appear that she died a, a, a tragic death in the prime of her life. And yet, in one sense, death is always a tragedy. There is sorrow when somebody dies, especially someone we love. There is loss on the part of those left behind. Abraham here, now when Sarah dies, he is 137 years old. Their son Isaac is 37 years old when Sarah died. Abraham and Sarah. Estimates are that they had been married for well over 100 years by this point in their lives. We know from Genesis that they lived together in the land of Canaan for 62 of those years when when they left Ur of the Chaldeans to obey God's command to leave their home and go to the land of Canaan. Sarah had been Abraham's soulmate. 
on this epic journey from Ur to Canaan and then down to Egypt and back again as they sojourn in and around the promised land. Sarah was right there for every pinnacle of Abraham's triumphs and she was right there for Abraham's failures. But now, Sarah, Abraham's princess, that's what her name means, his soulmate for over a century was dead. The reality of death, it echoes throughout this chapter. It begins with Sarah died. It ends with Abraham buried Sarah, his wife. And in between, we see all these variations of dead, buried, and tomb. And it's repeated over and over again. All of this is a reminder that death is the common sorrow of all people, including God's people. Listen, just because this morning you are a Christ follower, you are a believer in Jesus Christ, just because of that, that doesn't mean that we are impervious to suffering and sorrow. It doesn't mean that you do not mourn, you do not weep over the loss of a loved one, the loss of a parent, the loss of a spouse, even the loss of a child or a dear friend. Therefore, it is very appropriate here to read that Abraham mourned for his wife and wept over her. This is significant because Moses is showing us something here even about the heart of Abraham. It reveals the depth of his grief that he felt for his wife when she died. This word mourn, it refers to an audible crying out, which means if we would have been there by Abraham we would have heard him weeping. Perhaps even weeping like Jesus wept when Lazarus died in John eleven thirty five. 35. And even though Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, he still wept. And so we grieve when loved ones die, though not as those who do not share our resurrection hope. So what should we make of Sarah's life here? Normally at a funeral, when somebody dies, you give a eulogy. So what eulogy would we give for Sarah? What legacy legacy did she leave behind? Well, notice this in your notes. The legacy of Sarah's life is that she was a woman of faith. She was a woman of faith. The prophet Isaiah urged God's people in Isaiah 51, verses 1 through 2, to look to the rock from which you were honed, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and look to Sarah who bore you. You go to the New Testament, and Peter there holds up Sarah as this example of a godly woman and wife to follow in 1 Peter 3, verses 3 through 6. The writer of Hebrews includes Sarah in the list of the faithful in Hebrews 11, Verse 11, when it says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. And so Sarah's legacy is that she was a faith-filled woman who believed God's promises. In fact, she is the only woman in the whole book of Genesis whose age is actually mentioned at death. 127 years. Just ponder that for a moment. 
And when you think about that, it can be both encouraging and challenging. Because what it means is we are all going to have some number attached to our lives. There's a good chance that none of you here are going to make it to 127. Pretty confident about that. But, nevertheless, you will live to some number. And what matters is what we do with the time that God gives us here on this earth. Moses prays in Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And I think Sarah's legacy here challenges us to do that. Sarah lived 127 years, and we are living, quote, our days even now as I speak. And so our legacy, in other words, even now as teenagers, and whether you are young like them or on the older side of life, our legacy is being determined by how we live each day. Oh, Lord, help us. Oh, Lord, give us the grace and the faith to live like Sarah did. This brings us to the second lesson when it comes to faith in the face of death. Number two, sojourner in Canaan. A sojourner in Canaan. This is the the temporary status of God's people. As we read this account, we are not only reminded that death is the common sorrow of God's people, but we are also reminded of another truth about all of God's people, and that is the temporary status that we have in this world. We are sojourners. Look what it says in verses 3 through 6. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for, burying, for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. So in spite of the fact that the Hittites regarded Abraham as this prince of God, Abraham knows all too clearly his current status here on earth. He says, I'm a sojourner, and I am a foreigner among you. This word sojourner, as we have seen already before, it refers to one who did not enjoy the rights of a resident. And the word foreigner refers to one who has no land of his own. He's living on somebody else's land. And both were true of Abraham. In fact, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, Abraham acknowledges this. He acknowledges that he was a, a stranger and an exile on the earth. He had no land to call his own. He didn't even own a burial plot in which to bury his wife's body. But all of God's people, we are, we, all of us here, we are to realize that our status is no different than Abraham's status. God told his people how they were to think of themselves 
once they were in the land. In Leviticus 25, 23, it says, For the land is mine, for you are sojourners and strangers with me. David confesses to God in Psalm 39, 12, For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. And then in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter addresses believers, and he uses the exact same lingo to describe our status here on earth. 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That is our temporary status. It is our current status on this earth. This is the way we are to think of ourselves in this world. And so Abraham's words here stand as this wonderful confession of his faith. I'm a sojourner among you. Listen, God and this is amazing because God has promised the entire land of Canaan to Abraham. But the death of his wife, it, it marks a time here where it reminds him that he is still a sojourner in the land. And yet Abraham's faith is not weakened in this moment. His faith is not weakened by the loss of his wife. It is not weakened by his status as a sojourner. It is strengthened all the more. Abraham, yes, he knows his current status, but he also believes with all his heart that one day the land will be his possession. Why? Because God promised it. And that's why he purchased a cave in Canaan. And this leads us to our third and final lesson when it comes to faith in the face of death where we see this cave in Canaan. And you might be wondering, what does a cave in Canaan have anything to do with me today? Well, it has everything to do with you today. For this is the steadfast faith of God's people. Let me show you why. After grieving for Sarah, Abraham arises to secure a place from the people, a people group called the Hittites, in which to bury his wife. And Abraham says to the Hittites in verse 4, Look at it, I'm a sojourner, foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the Hittites responded back to Abraham in verses 5 and 6, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold you withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Now, what's interesting about this, well, interesting at least to me, perhaps to some of you, is that back in Genesis 15, God just tells Abraham straight up that he, God, was going to give him, that is Abraham, the land of the Hittites. This land. But as of now, it belongs to the Hittites. And so the Hittites now offer Abraham the, the use of a borrowed tomb in verse 6. But Abraham refuses it as a gift. And instead, Abraham makes a counterproposal asking to buy a cave outright. Why? Well, because the Hittites would still retain ownership of this borrowed tomb. And Abraham wants none of that. Abraham wants to possess the land where his wife is going to be buried. God promised Abraham this land. 
And now Abraham is believing God's promise by living like it's going to be true. In other words, Abraham is saying to himself, God, you said you'd give me the land of Canaan, so I'm just going to go ahead and start buying it with the resources that you have given to me. And so Abraham asks now to deal with one of the Hittites in particular, a man by the name of Ephron, to make a deal for a cave in Canaan. Notice how Abraham enters into the next stage of negotiations here in verses 7 through 9. Abraham rose and he bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zoar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns." It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Again, Abraham's negotiation here is phenomenal. It demonstrates that it is not enough for him to bury Sarah in a borrowed tomb. You say, why? Why is that so critical in Abraham's mind? Because he believes something here. He believes with all his heart that all the land of Canaan will eventually one day become a possession for his descendants, and he wants a burial plot as a first fruit of that promise. But Ephron, in this negotiation process, he knows the strength of his own position, and so he makes his own counteroffer to Abraham. We read in verses 10 and 11, Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham, In the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of the city, No, my Lord, hear me, I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead. Now that sounds rather generous, doesn't it? I'll give it to you, I'll give it to you. But Ephron knows, and Abraham knows, that he doesn't really mean to just give the field and the cave for free. This is just Middle Eastern negotiation tactics here. This is just the courteous way of doing business in that culture. What really it means is Ephron's trying to upsell Abraham. Oh, you want the cave? Well, let me throw in the field as well so I can up the price on you. And so the offer from Ephron is a field plus the cave. And Abraham agrees to buy both. But at what price? Well, Abraham now asked Ephron to name his price in verses 12 and 13. Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Now, Ephron, he really knows his position. He really knows that he can charge whatever he wants. And so he says to Abraham in verse 15, My Lord, listen to me. Oh, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Well, what is 400 shekels of silver? Well, without going into all the history of it, it's a whole lot of money. That's what it is. It's a very high price. But Ephron did have Abraham over a barrel. And so Abraham paid the full price of 400 shekels. We see this in verse 16. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 
400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. Now, from one perspective, from the world's perspective, perhaps, there's no doubt Abraham got ripped off in this negotiation. But he also got just what he wanted. His acquisition of the land to be indisputable and to be permanent. As one author summarizes this point so well, he says, Ephron walked away with a pocket full of silver that he could not take with him when he died. But Abraham attained in symbolic form an inheritance that he could not lose. And we see now the legal conclusion to all of this in verse 17, when it says, So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a what? As a possession. Oh, that is a beautiful word here. He made it as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of his city. And now Abraham can now finally bury his beloved wife, Sarah. And we see this is what happens in verses 18 and 19, where it says, after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as what? Property for a burying place by the Hittites. So, that was a lot of wheeling and dealing for a field and a cave. And the question we need to ask is, what is really all that about? What's really going on behind or underneath the negotiations here? And what's going on in all of this wheeling and dealing is a demonstration of Abraham's steadfast faith in God's promises. Notice this in your notes. Abraham bought a piece of land to bury Sarah, believing that one day the entire land of Canaan would be his as God promised. See, you need to understand that Abraham believed that God's promises extended beyond this life. And so he bought a piece of land to bury his wife, fully believing that all the land of Canaan would be his as God promised. Abraham buried Sarah in a cave. Listen, he did it for more than just sentimental reasons. It was a statement of his faith that someday his descendants would possess the land. As Kent Hughes writes in his commentary on the book of Genesis, Abraham was so sure that his descendants would get the land that he wanted Sarah's bones to be there when they got there. And so by owning part of the land, he was prophesying its ultimate ownership. In other words, by burying Sarah in the cave in Hebron, at this very center of the land of Canaan, Abraham was making his public stake in God's promises. God had promised Abraham the land and the fulfillment 
Although it lay in the distant future, Abraham is fully convinced that God would keep his promises. And so instead of taking Sarah's body back home to their former home in Ur of the Chaldeans, what does Abraham do? He buried her in the land that God had promised to give him and his descendants. And what's interesting is by the time you get to the very end of Genesis, you read through the book of Genesis, you get to the end, this cave, this particular cave that Abraham bought, do you realize it is full? Sarah is buried there. She's the first. Abraham will be buried there. Their son Isaac will be buried there. Rebecca, Isaac's wife, will be buried there. Leah will be buried there. Jacob's body was brought back from Egypt to be buried in this particular cave. Joseph wanted his bones to be buried in Canaan. You say, why? Why do they all care about that? Because this is about faith in the promises of God. That's why. By burying their bones in Canaan, the patriarchs were affirming their belief in the promises of God that goes beyond death. You see, we typically, in our culture, we want to be buried near our home, where we grew up, perhaps. So if we live in this city, but we were raised in this city where our family is, we, we have our body shipped back here, and we're buried here. Or maybe we, we, we're, this is home, Kansas City, so we, we're buried here. We're buried at home. We're buried with family. But the patriarchs wanted to be buried in the land that they believed would be their home eventually. And so this chapter here, chapter 23, it is very much connected, I hope you're seeing, to the land that God promised. And Abraham, as he obtains a place to bury Sarah, he now gets a possession of that land. A minuscule chunk of Canaan is now his. It's his property, his possession. This field and cave where Sarah is buried is in the land. It's a tiny bit of land in the land God promised. Yes, it is a mere parcel of what God promised, but it is still a possession. God's promise of the land has begun to come true, showing us that even in the face of death, there is hope in the promises of God. Again, as one author writes, the field of Machpelah was thus the first fruit of the promised land. It was God's down payment, providing assurance that the whole land would be theirs. And so what we see here on by Abraham, is amazing faith in God. It is astounding faith in God, especially when you consider where he started in Genesis 12 and his failures and roller coaster of faith, and now you get here. We just saw last week the climax of his faith in offering his son Isaac, and now you see it played out even again, a demonstration of that when his wife dies. Abraham saw far beyond the present realities of this life and even death in this world. And at the same time, we must keep in mind that though Abraham bought a tomb for Sarah in the heart of the promised land, as a declaration of his faith in the promises of God, ultimately, he was not looking for an earthly homeland for himself. The writer of Hebrews, speaking of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, 13 through 16, these all died 
in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire, listen to it, a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And specifically, the writer of Hebrews says of Abraham in verses 9 and 10, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Folks, so it is with us. At least it should be. Listen, the mark of, of true believers has always been that, that we desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Paul reminds us of this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. He reminds us that our citizenship is where? Our citizenship is in heaven, he says. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle John describes this heavenly city at which we are looking forward to in Revelation 21, 2 through 4. He says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is our promised land. This is what we are looking forward to in faith. Some of you are familiar with the name C.S. Lewis. And I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. Let me read it to you. He writes, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were were those who thought most of the next world. The apostles themselves, who set in motion the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely cease to think of the other world, that they have become so ineffective in this one. And then he says, or he writes, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. This is why fixing our gaze on God's promise of heaven is so central in the Christian life. 
He gives us joy that transcends our circumstances. Listen, it provides a particular comfort in the midst of grief. It motivates us to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. It energizes us to live heavenly lives in every other way while still living here on earth. It is true. God's promise to Abraham, it did not remove the prospect of death. God's blessing, it didn't mean that his wife, Sarah, wouldn't die. She did die. And Abraham's going to die. We will see that in two weeks. But Abraham believed with all his heart that death was not the end of God's promises. This is what it means to not only live by faith, but to also die in faith. Notice this in your notes. As Christians, we live by faith and we die in faith, believing that death is not the end. Rather, it is the door through which you enter into the full measure of God's promises. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that that death is not the end, but it is only the beginning of God's promises? Alan Ross, a a writer, wrote a a commentary on the book of Genesis. He, He writes this, and I quote him. He says, the time of death, when the natural inclination is to mourn as the world mourns, should be the time of our greatest demonstration of faith, he says. For the recipient of God's promises has a hope beyond the grave. Listen, the overwhelming majority of God's promises that God makes to you and I will be unfulfilled as you die. And the question is, will you die in faith, believing and trusting those promises that God has made. This chapter here, it is a beautiful chapter. It is here to, I'll use the word force, but really to challenge us to look at our lives and the reality of death. It reminds us that that death is a part of life. It also reminds us that it is appropriate to mourn for our loved ones just as Abraham mourned for Sarah. And yet, and yet, it also reminds us that we do not mourn as those who mourn without hope. Listen, because Jesus has died for us, and because he was laid in another cave, we have hope here this morning. His tomb was borrowed. It was not purchased. Why? Because Jesus would not need it long. On the third day, he rose from the grave as the first fruits of all those who trust in him. And because of his resurrection, death is now the door through which you and I, when we believe in Jesus, we enter eternal life. Therefore, we, we as Christ followers, we do not grieve like the hopeless Listen, instead, we rejoice in God's promise of a resurrection. And so every time that we bury believers in Christ, we should remind ourselves that death is coming for you. Death is coming for you, and you, and you, and it's coming for me. It's coming for all of us. This is one of the benefits of attending funerals. 
We had the opportunity to have a beautiful funeral here just a week ago, two weeks ago. When we had a funeral service for a beloved saint in the Lord, Francis Slayton. And it was a beautiful reminder of this right here that we're seeing. This is the benefit of going to funerals or a memorial service, whatever the case might be, a celebration of life. I don't care what you call it. We ought to think about death, not because it's so terrifying, but because it is a reminder of sin's consequences and also a reminder of the need that we have of Jesus Christ and that God has provided us a way to conquer death. It's beautiful. So in the face of death, there is hope in the promises of God. And so like Job, listen, all of us here as Christ followers, we we should rejoice and we should declare at death, but as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. That's what Abraham believed. It's what Sarah believed. The question is, is it what you believe? And if you do, has it motivated you, has it humbled you enough to confess your sin and cry out to God, save me. I put my faith in Jesus Christ and nobody else because that is the only way that I can be saved. your heads bowed. Heavenly Father, thank you, oh, thank you for the example of Abraham here in this chapter to show us that even in the face of death, there is hope in the promises of God. And so may you give us grace to live by faith, but also to die in faith, believing that death is not the end. Believing that it is the door through which we enter into the full measure of your promises in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.